This is On Air. Welcome to the Honor Fest podcast. I'm Gemma Rose Brown, and this is Profiles, a series of conversations recorded live at On Air Fest. At On Air, we bring together the creative vanguard of thinkers, performers, and storytellers to explore the creative possibilities of sound. And in this episode, Jenna Wortham in conversation with Mona Chalabi. Journalists, cultural critics, and friends who support each other's work and ambitions, Jenna is an award-winning journalist for the New York Times Magazine and, of course, the co-host of the podcast Still Processing. Her writing spans from internet trends to healing, race, and gender. And Mona is a data journalist whose Twitter byline says, trying to take the numb out of numbers, which she definitely does. Mona translates spreadsheets into written pieces, illustrations, audio, and film. And in their work, both have this incredible way of picking up on cultural phenomena and teasing out what these observations can say about this moment in time. Together they talk about their careers, and then they take this important sidestep, moving into a conversation on caring for the self. Here is Jenna Wortham and Mona Chalabi recorded live at On Air Fest at Wythe Hotel in Brooklyn. Woo! Hello. Welcome to our talk. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm Jenna Wortham, as said. I'm, I'm a staff journalist, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and I've been at the New York Times for the majority of my career since I came to New York almost 10 years ago. And I also co-host a podcast called Still Processing with Wesley Morris. Um, And I'm also, oh, (laughs) fans in the house. And I'm also a co-editor of a book that's forthcoming from One World, which is an imprint at Random House called Black Futures with Kimberly Drew, which is a visual anthology of this current moment in collective blackness. Um, it's so nice to be here with you, Jenna. Um, I am Mona Chalabi. I'm one of Jenna's friends. Uh, I'm also... Top of the resume. <laughs> um, I'm also a data journalist. Uh, I have a column at The Guardian where I'm data editor at large and um, I create illustrations too. And I guess part of the reason I'm here is that um, as part of my role there, I made um, a podcast very briefly. Yeah. Called? Uh, called Strange Bird. Yeah. Yeah. Should we get stuck in? Let's yes. Get stuck so, in. so we're going to talk for a, a little bit, and then we're, there is going to be a little time for Q and A. So if you have questions, burning questions, there'll be time for them at the end. So we're just going to interview each other yeah. and just talk. Yeah. Okay. So I want to start. So Mona, we met. Is it two years ago now? More or less. Yeah. Yeah. More or, or less. More or less. Mm-hmm. More. Give or, less. or take some yeah. time. So we met. Um, during a writing retreat called the Jack Jones Literary Arts Retreat in the desert of New Mexico. And it was just instant, fast and furious friendship. And I know so much about you and your life and we meet up regularly and we hang out. And I know your work because I follow you on Instagram and I've been a fan of yours for even before we met at JGLA. But I think in thinking about this convo and what I wanted to talk to you about, I'm, I'm so curious how you started doing what you do, because I'm very familiar with what your life is like now and what it looks like, but I want to know kind of how you got into being a data journalist. Um, 
So, great question. Um, I, when I left university, it was never the plan to go into journalism. Really, uh, I thought I wanted to work for the United Nations. So I went to go and work for a part of the United Nations called the International Organization for Migration, where we were collecting statistics um, about all kinds of different things, about Iraqi refugees and internally displaced people. Um, but I felt really frustrated by the fact that those what I felt were really important numbers were being shared with a very, very small group of people. So you would just sit around the table and discuss these numbers with maybe three or four people. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to have a bigger audience for work that was I felt was important and needed to be shared with the public. And so I kind of transitioned into data journalism from there. I'm curious about your journey. Tell me about your journey into journalism. I know a little oh, bit about it's it. so long. Um, I want to hear it. They want to hear it. Oh, God. <laughs> That's the briefest version. Let's see, I can give, because we don't have that much time. Um, well, the thing for me is I, I guess I grew up in a family that most people didn't really go away to school or they didn't go away to four-year school, four-year colleges. So my understanding of what one was supposed to do there was study the thing that would ensure employment after graduation so you could have a job and have a career. And I'd had an aptitude for the sciences. I was really good at chemistry and biology in high school. So my brain was like, oh, I should pursue that in college. I should go into being you know, a doctor or, or something like that or, or study science in some way. And so I did that and I was miserable. And I, um, I remember getting, I applied to go study abroad in your homeland, one of your homelands. <laughs> and um, the person who reviewed my application called my mom and was like, do you know how bad her grades are, basically? And my mom was like, what? And it was just this moment of awakening for me because even though they I- They called your mom, that seems wrong. I, now that I say that, I don't know. How, I don't know how she got. I don't know why they called her. Yeah, that's wrong. Anyway, something is fun. I gotta yeah. go. I gotta go. To, anyway, the point is, my mom, and it was a, it was a moment for me because I was just like, she was asking me like, is the work hard? And it was true. Like I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to manage all the tasks of being at school, being away from home, and just the enormous. And also, I went and to working. UVA, where I worked We'd, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also being in this environment, which was just, I went to UVA. It was just socially not right for me. So mm -hmm. I was depressed and unhappy. And I think it was a wake up call because having your mom be like, yo, what's the deal? Step one, I'm paying for this. Step two, being like, okay, well, what would make me happy? And I think it was the moment of this conversation with my mm. mom who was just like, you don't have to get a job. You just study what makes you happy and the rest will figure itself out, which was such a gift because I think I put all this pressure on myself that I didn't understand. I didn't have to do that. Um, so I went abroad in London for a little while. And when I came back, I just took a bunch of grassroots media classes because I loved writing. I loved reading. I didn't know how those things could become a job. And so that was the beginning of a journey of like meeting other people who are like, well, you have the thing you do that you love and then you hustle on the side to pay for it. So that was kind of the beginning for me. What did it feel like to have your first piece published? I still have the check. My first published piece was for Bust Magazine. Shout out. I don't know what bust is. I'm really sorry. Oh, my God. That's okay. It's a is very it about, US thing. Is it about what I think is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, it's a very um, activated, like, feminist women's publication. It's still, it's still out. I'll get you some copies of it. But it would be like, it would, you know, like, cute interviews with, like, Tina Fey or, like, even cool. Salon. Yeah. Salon Trebus in 2009. And then it would be like, here's how to take care of your money. Here's how to cook. Like, mm. it was, here's information about personal lubes here's information about sexuality it was just like a very cool magazine aimed towards women yeah um and you know it's funny because someone um in my life framed that check for me 
And then my person who's here recently asked me, but did you cash that check before they framed it? And I was like, I didn't. And I feel dumb. It was $50. Like, that was big money. You know, yeah. it still is big money. Yeah. And something that we, so we got breakfast before we came here and we talked about the process of, of making our work. I'm curious about how the process has changed from when you first started out to your process for creating work now. Do you want to start, do you want to answer that too though first? Because I want to know. Okay. Because you, you, yeah. you've been full-time and now you're freelance. And yeah. So there's an interesting shift in sort of, I would imagine, I'm yeah. curious to hear more about if you, what you cover and how you cover it is shifting now that you don't, you're not obliged mm. to any, any larger editorial, you know, agenda. Yeah. So when I would say that when I first started out, it was very much in the newsroom. Um, I was working in the UK and I would say British journalism is very different to American journalism in lots of ways. One of which is that the emphasis is often placed on getting the story first as opposed to necessarily getting the story right. Um, and that's one thing that I really appreciate over here. So my work was kind of a bit slapdash, to be honest. I was just doing four pieces a day, just like churning out stuff. And like, it's really not stuff that I would have necessarily been proud of uh, or am proud of necessarily now and I feel like part of the privilege of of being where I'm at in my career is I can be more selective Um, so I would say my pieces take me much longer now there's much more of an emphasis on the research part of it as opposed to the like the um, the producing of the the thing that is then shared with the public, like that as a fraction of all of the work is is smaller. Um, whether it's drawing an illustration or whether it's writing an article or creating a piece of audio, that's a smaller part of it. So that's one way in which my work has changed, yeah. What about you? Oh. Um, well, it's, yeah, th- I guess this is what came over breakfast. But it's, it's interesting because I, I started my career as a blogger at Wired. So in a, in a very long roundabout way, I wound up on the West Coast and interned anywhere that would have me. And even though I don't think, I don't really tell people to work for free, I did work for free and I worked every internship I could and I waitressed and, and bartended during the evenings and then I interned during the day, which was grueling. Um, and I think I was just taking whatever work I could. Similarly, while you were speaking, I was like, what was my first blog post for Wired and it was something so embarrassing. I mean, and I, I, it took me a while to even get to blog for Wired because I worked as an intern and then a freelance fact checker there forever um, before I even got to do that. But I think I was just, because I came up in the culture of a newsroom and so there was just like this grueling pace of like being first but all, relentless and being in the trenches, which I loved. I love that that adrenaline rush of publishing and just seeing something that you've been working on just go immediately to the web and then in the paper. Um, But a few years ago, I wanted to slow down and I wanted to transition to working at a magazine, which ended up also giving birth to the podcast. And I think it's interesting because it took me a really long time to adjust. I mean, we finally live in a news culture that has caught up to the frenetic pace of blogging because I remember back in the day, you'd be like, what's going to be my eighth post today? And then you'd be like... Trident posted something funny on Twitter, and so then you'd you know you'd like write a post about that. But now there's I think there's a much more there's much more of a of an interest in um, synthesizing the news or getting your arms around all all of these tidbits of news because it is so overwhelming. And so I feel very grateful for slower journalism and the kind of thoughtfulness and gentleness that we get to have either in a magazine feature or in a podcast where there is there is a little bit of air or oxygen for um, 
nuance, which is hard to do when you're just trying to get the news out and you're just trying to get the news up. But it also feels like that's resonant for your work because I feel like you're you're looking at hard facts. You know, I don't know why I'm doing quotes, but you're looking at <laughs> you're looking at hard that's numbers. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and well, because because I mean, we should talk about this though because data is. I'm, I'm curious too how you think about data and what mm. is good data and what's bad data and the stories that it tell. But I also feel like you look at you know, you take information and then you just try to make it very relatable or very applicable and tell a story through that. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that was always exciting about data journalism to me, I guess, was the possibility to kind of zoom out and provide what I hoped would be like the bigger picture on something. So like, let's say there's a news story on, it could be anything like, I don't know, uh, uh, a building burns down in London, right? I, as a data journalist, get to hopefully try to give readers or listeners or viewers this opportunity to view out and understand, like, how frequently does this thing happen? Like, let's contextualise this in history. Let's look at who gets most affected by this, which racial groups, which age groups, um, and provide that bigger picture. But I feel like, actually, uh, my experiences in data journalism have put me off of that that a little bit. Like, I feel like that's quite a... um, Hmm. it's quite a, a high idea that doesn't actually live up to reality very often. And very often what happens, I think, is that individual experiences can get erased in this ideal for like this perfect objective data journalism. And data journalism is never objective. And so for me, what I'm trying to do more and more of in my work is just combining the individual experience and the broader context of this data journalism in a way that... like is compelling, so you still have those individual voices in there somehow. And that's, that's, that's a hard balance, but it's still something that I kind of strive to do, yeah. And how do you decide what you're going to focus on? Um, I wanted to ask you that same question, so I'm going to ask you it in a second. Um, I would honestly say, like, a lot of it comes from... Um, again, listeners, readers or viewers, like it's really important to me to find, I very regularly tweet just saying, what do you want me to cover this week? Or I will check my DMs or, and, and people are thinking about stuff that isn't on my radar at all, at all. Like someone, I, I, I literally this week, I, I put up saying like, what shall I draw? And someone, I think I will actually eventually cover this, so maybe it's not good to say in front of a room full of people who could potentially cover it, but who cares? Um, uh, and it was someone saying to me, um, women donate organs at higher rates than men. Can you explore that? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to explore that. And there's no way that that would have come up for me if it hadn't been through that message. So I feel like that's a really, really big part of my research. But the other thing that I try to do is to also check um, academic blogs. Like there's weird stuff like Science Daily and Eureka Alert. And very often what's happening is I find academics are publishing work that is massively interesting in completely unintelligible ways. And so I'm kind of trying to act as a translator almost and to dig into those studies, to dig into the appendix and to make that work intelligible to the, to the broader public. You're like a data whisperer. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, I don't know. How do you pick your stories? You know, um, sometimes we do, well, for which job? I guess I'll just speak about the podcast, yeah, okay, yeah. since this is on Airfest. Um, well, <laughs> it's funny because the, the process by picking uh, what we'll cover has shifted so much as the show has evolved and matured. I think we used to have these really lofty ambitions and be like, we want to talk about climate change. And then I think it was kind of like, well, well, do you know anything about climate change? Like, maybe <laughs> you should realize that there are... There is a whole, you know, and, and that's the, I think that's the benefit of being couched within a broader institution that, that does so much. That there isn't, you know, like a lot of people have been asking us lately, like, how do we think about the 2020 election? And we're just like, we can point you to a whole host of coverage yeah. about that. Like, we don't necessarily have to shift our 
shift our areas of expertise. The podcast doesn't have to be a catch-all, but is there something within what's coming up for us as we approach the election that might make for a good podcast? So sometimes like hearing that readers or, or listeners are interested in, in hearing us go down that rabbit hole is like, what would the still processing approach, approach be to that? Mm-hmm. And it might be like, you know, I'm really interested in, um, I don't know if people saw that video of Kamala Harris that got... Um, manipulated so it looked like she was saying in college she listened to Tupac and Snoop while she did the weed but then people were like she wasn't even those albums weren't even out when she was in college but the interview had actually been condensed so I'm really interested which is really interesting to think about how information is is manipulated so for me it's like wow so what does that say about how we process information what does that say about narratives that we're willing to opt into and to believe so is there a way because it's a piece of audio as well that we could do kind of a CSI mm. of that moment and trace it. So that might be our approach to thinking about the election. But the truth is, honestly, anything we talk about on the show is born between text messages between Wesley and I, and we text each other all the time. And there was this meme going around Twitter for a while that was, um, it was like, you know how people would be like me, like no one and then me. And it was like an image of a bunch of blue dots and then one gray dot and then blue dots. And it was trying to talk about how much I text my friends versus how much they text me. And I sent that to Wesley and I was like, this is us. And he's like, what does this mean? I was like, oh, I text you all the time and you never respond. <laughs> which, is, which is true, but that's just, that's just specific to how we interact. I mean, sometimes he's more active and sometimes I'm not. But, but usually we will just go back and forth about a thing or I'll say to him, oh my God, you have to watch this show on Netflix so we can talk about, you know, sexuality. Or sometimes he'll say to me, my favorite is a Wesley assignment though. And he, like for months he was like, go see Green Book. And I was like, I don't want to see it. He was like, Jenna, you got to go see this movie. And then I'm like, okay. So, so it's kind of like a shared, and then I'll go see the thing and then be like, oh, you're right. Here's all the things I hated. And then we'll, we'll take that into a lunch and then kind of, map it, and then we pitch it to our producers, and we'll be like, here's what we want to talk about. And then we basically work on a whiteboard to work backwards and figure out, because we're both still better at thinking how the types of audio essays we do work on the page, and so we have to kind of vomit everything out, and then they kind of like sift through it. Here's the backbone of that, and then we refine it, and then we go in the studio and just talk through it. Well, I'm interested in the audio aspect of it. Like, how has your work changed when you're thinking about audio versus Mm. when you're thinking about the written word? Um, How has my work changed? I mean, I think for me, the biggest growth curve or the growth area for me was learning how to really believe in and trust what I was saying. And I think as a writer, you spend so much time in your own head and alone that you get to do all that on your own terms without anybody listening or watching. But it makes for really bad audio in the studio if you keep stopping and going, mm, is that really what I mean? Hold on, hold on. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of that too comes from just just you know, I don't have to I work out those questions by myself or with an editor. And so you have to learn how to really you know, stick the landing and finish a sentence. Um, so I think I had to kind of work out some of my own insecurities about speaking out loud and trusting in my ideas. And then a lot of it too is 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 being willing to look dumb, whatever that means to you, and, and trust that that's not going to happen. And then Wesley and I have to work on our personal friendships so much so that I feel really comfortable with him when I step into the room because 
you know, he is this like Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, you know, and it's just like, fuck, sometimes when we get into the room and he'll make a point and I'll be like, God damn it, like, I just, you know, you, you good, you know, and some, and it, but it is also being able to say that and not feel like he gets, he gets the spotlight sometimes and sometimes I get the spotlight and it's not a competition and I think we do spend a lot of time together and so I think when we come into the room, I don't ever feel like I'm gonna, an idea that I have is gonna be dismissed or talked over or interrupted, even though he does all those things, but I know it comes from a place of love, it's not a place of, of, of hierarchy or, or some sort of male supremacy, it's just literally he's so excited to talk. Um, so I think that's kind of, I'm trying to answer that question, like I had to do a lot of personal work in order to shift the way my ideas come out in a room, which is very unfamiliar as someone who spent the majority of their time on the page, and I've, I haven't even done that much video work either, so it's like you have to get good at just being okay to see where the, th like just trust the threads are gonna unravel in a way that's interesting, or your producer makes them sound good. And as a, as a writer, you just have more control over it. Like you get to decide exactly the point at which you hand over that piece of work and you can edit it a thousand times. I don't know, you just have much more control over it. But I'm also interested in this idea that we were talking about earlier on about like reality. Mm. And um, it's something that I think about in the data journalism that I do. So I feel like if I was to say to you right now a statistic, like one in three people... I don't know, have plants in their homes or whatever. I feel like a lot of you would feel like a healthy sense of skepticism about it. But there's something about data visualization that means that trust is kind of it, like, it's just true. It was made by a computer. It, there's no way in for me to be able to like <laughs> dismantle it and question yeah. it in, in necessarily the same way. And so I think it, it's interesting in this broader context, I guess, of podcasting. When I think about the podcasts that to me seem like they're doing really well and are quite popular at the moment, it feels like the ones where people can have trust in the reality of what they're hearing. And so mm. it's either people discussing their opinions, because your opinion is your opinion. I'm going to trust that. That feels real to me, right? You're talking about your perspective as Jenna Wortham, talking about this thing, or it's true crime and it's like a murder. And it's like, that seems real to me. This yeah. woman was murdered and you're going to describe in great horrific detail um, how she was murdered. And things that fall between don't, I don't know. I think people really crave something that feels real. And there's something about audio that only lends itself well to certain subjects. Like, I don't know. Oh, I'm try still trying to figure out this thought a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think we're in a moment of, of a greater awakening of the ways in which facts and data and information can be manipulated. And we also are living in an era that is defined by a pathology of untruthfulness and so you can't believe you, you know you can't believe the the charts that you're singing you can't even believe the president when he when he speaks and you and so that creates a really healthy skepticism and a really healthy sense of distrust that I think I always have even though I'm the most optimistic person I'm also extremely cynical about everything that I see and read and hear although I did get got by that Kamala Harris video which is why I'm obsessed with it because I was like lol like of course and and now I'm like really interested in why it was so easy for me to just believe that narrative instead of interrogate it, which again, I think has a lot to do with how information is shared and passed. And if, and if you see someone reputable sharing something or talking about it, that trust is kind of displaced onto that person. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, well, if they are sharing this, then that means it's passed some kind of smell test, but that's just not necessarily true anymore. So I think that our, our jobs have become much more interesting and much more relevant, thank God, in the last couple of years, because there is a desire to try to figure out 
how to discern, like how to do that sorting mechanism, which is again my theory about like why cancel culture is so popular because everyone's like, I need a Harry Potter sorting hat. Like, what's true? What can I get rid of? You know, like, what do I have to listen? To? Can I listen to Solange or should I not care about it? Do I need to think about this movie or not think about it? Which I think is doing us a disservice because it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You can't just automatically separate things into, into a binary of relevant or not relevant. But I also wonder if part of the reason why that Kamala Harris video was so compelling, we, we were talking as well about how, like, when you watch video, you're a little bit more passive. Like, you believe, yes, yes. You believe the things that... It's all being given to you. The sound is there, the video is there. You can just kind of consume it. Whereas to me, one of the things that makes podcasting quite exciting is that there's that little space in between where you have to be active because you're imagining what the person who you're listening to looks like, how their body is moving, what they're telling you. And I wonder if it's like... I wonder if sometimes that's too much work and that's why like it's easier to just believe that to just listen to the true crime podcast and listen to people discussing their opinions I don't know I don't know I'm still trying to figure out I don't but I think the part of the reason why I'm like waffling on about this is I'm trying to figure out what data journalism would sound like and that's really really difficult for me to imagine because mm. I think it would be exhausting for people I feel like it would be boring for the most part. But you did, you talked a lot about though, when you do your pieces the, and, and you, or, you know, people respond to them, you get these nuances that either fit into the stories that we're told about, about how we live or stories that live outside of that. And so I don't know you, I mean, without getting specific, cause you kind of shared some of the, you know, but you ask people to tell you how they fit into these, mm. into these into these surveys and so then you get these stories that do you know what I'm trying to say yeah, like, yeah. yeah 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 like the the one I the one idea that I did have for a podcast at one point was this idea of outliers and speaking to people who don't fit within the data right, set right. and understanding why they don't and then and then as part of that you can explore what that broader data set looks like so the example that we gave earlier on was like someone once asked me what's the typical age that people will come out at whatever that looks like for them how they do it and I feel like that's really, really fascinating, but I just don't know if data necessarily does that story justice. And so, again, it's how do you com combine the quantitative and the qualitative to tell the story in the most meaningful way possible? But see, I would love to listen to a podcast about that. Mm. Like, here is the stat, and then here are all the things that kind of make sense within this, and then don't. Yeah. You know, maybe we're workshopping your next podcast idea. <laughs> maybe, but maybe. Right now, but I would love to listen to that. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Should we ask some questions of the audience, too? Are we out of time? No, we're not. No, let's keep talking oh, I didn't for a little see bit. The, yeah, we've I got more time. I'm keeping okay. an eye on okay. it, so you can just relax. <laughs> okay, yeah, great, great. Um, but I do want to go back to this thing. I want to talk about the podcast that you worked on for a little bit, which is called Strange Bird. And there was only one episode, which is sad because it was a pilot that didn't get picked up. If anyone here in the audience wants to revive <laughs> it, I thought it was really incredible because you talked to your mom about. Well, you talked about miscarriages, and then you interviewed your mom, and I, I just. I don't know, I think that's why I love podcasts because you get things that, there is such a deep intimacy in what people are willing to talk about on the radio because, I, I don't know, maybe it's because we have this historical relationship to what we think. I mean, I know podcasts aren't radio, but they feel like radio, yeah. and so it's usually like yeah. you to the, it's like kind of a, a weirdly one-to-one -one mm. experience in some ways, and so it it just touches something so within you, but when I listened to that episode, I was just like kind of crying, because also knowing you and knowing about your relationship to your mom, and then feeling this sort of deep loveness between you two as you're exploring something that most women don't even talk to their friends about, mm. let alone their children, losing a child, you know, and so so 
there's just something so, I don't know, and I'm wondering if that, because also working in data journalism too, there's like a little bit of a remove and a distance where you're the cipher. You know, mm. you're not necessarily putting yourself into the work. You're acting as like, I'm going to make sense of these unfamiliar things for you. That's your service that you're doing. But in the podcast, you got to step into this, you know, this sort of, you got to step into your own life in a way. But it's also dangerous, right? Because I feel like podcasting as a medium, just so the way that that was recorded, that conversation with my mum, like there wasn't even someone recording down the other end. It was just my mum on the phone to her daughter. And obviously I say right at the outset, mum, I'm recording this and I'm going to ask you very, very painful questions. And there's someone else in the room with me. And she's like, sure, sure, sure. But like 20 minutes into the conversation, she doesn't continue to imagine that I'm sitting with a recording device on the other end. She's just sitting in her home in London, on the phone to her daughter, narrating these facts. And then I wield all of the power about how I then choose, because I know her well enough to know which parts she she was saying to me and which parts she was saying to The Guardian. <laughs> and the truth is, most of it she was saying to me. So that's a really, really difficult process. And I did with her what I've done with other people. It's always a question of like power. And in that case, she kind of wields absolutely none. And so I have a responsibility to go back to her to say, these are the things that I'm going to include. Are you sure about this? Um, and what'd she say? <laughs> she was like, I'm really not sure. Uh, and her answer is always, I would, I would, um, sorry, there's a play. Um, I would rather that you didn't, but it's okay. Mm. Which is weird. Uh, it's a weird, she's kind of like deferring back to me because she knows that this is part of my job. But like, especially like the cultural background that I have is you share nothing publicly, absolutely nothing. The line between the public and the private is so sharp. And that's something that I think is really interesting about how journalism has changed, how much now as journalists, we give over of ourselves personally and privately, whether mm -hmm. it's through Instagram or it's when you're talking to Wesley in that studio, we're talking about an, an incredibly intimate apology to someone. Mm. That's part of the work is revealing some of yourself. But at what point do you stop? Yeah. I know it's interesting because that apology episode, I tried really hard not to think about, like I felt invested in it and I felt like I wanted to do it and it was something that had been on my mind, but I also knew that that relationship could sustain A, the surprise and B, whatever the outcome was, but I also was really trying hard not to think about how it would feel when it came out, mm. if that makes sense. It was very it hard to listen to that draft. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think you kind of have to just shelve that. The, yeah, idea of yeah. the, the idea of the imagined audience and the imagined reaction to it, it just has to be almost secondary to just doing the story right. I don't know. No, I think that's right. It's also just that the, that the cost can be very high and it's, it's completely unimaginable as any kind of person who's visible to the public once you start parceling out parts of yourself for consumption and digestion, especially as a person of color, especially as a woman of color, the more intersections you have, the more vulnerable you are, I think, because you, know, you don't really know. You never really know. I mean, and for me, it's always like the 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 benefit always outweighs the cost and everything for me is that kind of emotional calculation. Is this gonna potentially benefit the people that I do the work for, which are women, queer women of color like myself or queer people of color like myself? Is that gonna, that always feels like it's going to outweigh whatever the potential inbound reaction might be, but it is something you can never ever really understand until it happens. And that's, that's the only awareness that I ever have as a journalist anymore, is you never know how a piece of yourself is going to take off and be received and potentially make you vulnerable to being targeted, which has happened all the time. And luckily, because I started out at Wired, I remember when I was like, God, baby journo, and I wrote 
like a thinky piece on I Am Legend. Remember that Will Smith movie, which I loved? And I don't even know, I should go back and find it and reread it, but something I said just like set the trolls aflame. And Did I remember- Did you criticize Will Smith? Probably. No, I probably made a joke and they were just like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, yes, I do. But there was this line that was just like, someone should take Jenna Wortham out and shoot her in the head. And it was just sort of like, that was like a comment, you know, and it was, it was good that that happened to me earlier on because it made me have such thick skin. And also I always read comments and I'm always very receptive to them. And so it's he- it was healthy for me to have that earlier on. But I'm just thinking about that is the type of thing that can happen to you in, at such a mass volume that it can be completely demoralized. So it's just hard. Yeah. It's it's hard because the work is being vulnerable and the work is figuring out which part, how much of yourself to kind of make available, but it, you're always doing it with the knowledge that at any point it could just go terribly sideways. Yeah. And sideways, not just for you, but for the people around you. I don't know. Like I think all the time about how the comments that were directed at me, especially after I've covered anything that is, it's not even to me, then like, yeah, after I've written certain things, the hate that I have got, mm. the way that that could potentially be targeted towards people who share the same last name as me is, that bothers me. Yeah, yeah. 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 What else should we talk about? Oh, I, well, something that's really interesting to me and I've been thinking about so much is this notion of just like, well, we put so much of ourselves into our work and we also have so many side projects and we're also taking on so much more work than we can ever really do. And I'm... and. I think too now we also live in a time where because we can outsource, in, in theory, we can outsource so much of our lives. So you can order groceries on demand. You can, if you know, if you don't have time to run to the bodega, you can make an order on Fresh Direct or Amazon or, or what, what have you. And and so you get this impression that there's more bandwidth than you actually have because you can't outsource it. And as a freelancer, and as I'm interested in talking about this too because I have so many side projects going on right now. I'm just curious about your relationship to work and and how do you balance, do you balance, and what does that feel like for you when you could potentially be working all the time? I mean, we're technically working on a Sunday, you know, but this because we're friends, it just feels like it's so, it's easy, you know, and we get to spend time together, which is something we would want to do anyway. But I am curious kind of how, how that's coming up for you and how you're managing you know, keeping all the all the pots being stirred at the same time. I don't think I'm managing it very well. I I feel like um, yeah, like I just remember I I hadn't taken a vacation for like four years, and then I just like collapsed mm-hmm. basically, and then mm-hmm. I went away on vacation. I was like, I'm never going to do that again, and then like I just did it again. Like I don't even I am not very good at like checking in with myself and knowing how I'm doing so I just know that I'm not doing well once I'm not doing well and I don't really know before that point yeah um and I think it's just because like you know there's just everyone keeps on talking about like self-care and I don't really get it Mm. I just don't I don't really understand what that means like for me a bubble bath isn't Mm self-care like it doesn't have to be yeah Yeah. I mean I couldn't have a bubble bath because my bath is you know, I live in New York, it's a disgusting bathtub. I wouldn't do it anyway. Um, but even if I could, I don't, I don't know. What does, what does that look like for you? Like, how do you take care of yourself? I'll answer that in one second. But I want to know, what's, <laughs> what's the thing that you do that makes you feel, like, relaxed? Like, what's the, is it like spending time with friends? Is it going for a walk? It's tough because 
it's tough because we both love what we do yeah. and, and the things that we love to do because they make money for us are not necessarily relaxing. Like you were saying, you mm. don't really draw for pleasure anymore. And I was like, I don't really write for pleasure anymore. You yeah. Know? Which is really sad it's in a way, weird. but yeah. we're also so privileged that m most of the time we're doing what we enjoy yeah. Yeah. We're as, like, as our job. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I feel a little bit relaxed when I'm like, speaking on the phone to people oh, back that's home nice. that's quite yeah. nice but it's also stressful right like yeah. a time zone difference yeah, yeah, is yeah. a time zone difference so like if ever anything happens to me in the evening it sometimes feels like I'm just by myself because mm -hmm. all of my people are asleep oh, yeah. so like I yeah those mornings are like an important time to me to like for me to like check in with people mm -hmm. that's something that I do mm -hmm. but that is that self-care absolutely no. absolutely of course no. it is because I'm like I just feel like now anything that isn't making money is called self-care that's how bad capitalism has got and also the the irony is that self-care usually involves spending money exactly so what we think of as self-care yeah. involves spending money i just feel like it shows you how extreme capitalism has become mm -hmm. that if you go for a walk that's self-care if you take a lunch if you eat food and like take a breath <laughs> No, no, but it, but the but I think that I think the notion of what caring for because I don't the self care to me feels really compressed and condensed and it's such a hashtag that it it's so warped because what does it actually mean? So I think about I think about this in terms of caring for the self. So for me, what helps me feel cared for is not having to catapult myself out of bed into the shower and then get on the subway. So like trying to arrange my life in a way that when I wake from sleep, I have the ability to just transition, even if it's for 30 seconds, from the sleep world to the waking world. So that I, even this morning before coming to me for breakfast, I had time to make a coffee. Like that to me, just not feeling like I'm just gasping for breath to me is caring for the self. And that's not ever something that I could buy or order on Amazon. So I think for me, it's like, well, okay, so how do I have to rearrange my life so I can do that? And the truth is that actually most of the time I can't. You know, most of the time I am gasping for breath and gasping for, don't frown, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I think that learning how to, you know, know what the self needs is a lifelong practice. And we don't live in a culture or society that really teaches us that. We're actually taught because of capitalism and lots of other societal things that whatever you need, you can buy, or that there's always a solution for that or an app for that. There, you know, there's a pill for that or a snack for that or a green juice for that. You know? You're not taught to just actually listen to the self and think about even be in tune with your body. For me, yeah, even not, being yeah. in tune with my body is caring for the yeah. self. Yeah. And it's, it's more of like a spiritual relationship than a, than a consumerist one. I feel like that definition is very helpful to me because it also helps me understand why no one else can do that for you. Right. You know, like this isn't about like people should be more compassionate towards one another because no one else can really figure out what you need in that respect, right? Other than Absolutely. You. And that's why too, like you saying a bubble bath isn't self-care makes sense because just because you saw a story in the times where it's like millennials love to take baths, it's like, oh wait, should I be taking more baths? Now I take a lot of baths, but that's because I have chronic back pain issues. And so I need to soak all the time to soften the muscles so that I'm not in pain every time I move around. But that's, so for me, that is caring for the self because I'm just doing kind of daily tune-ups or maintenance to feel okay and my meat skin, but or my meat suit, but that's not going to work for you because we're different people. Yeah. We're completely different humans. So now is a good time to take questions from the okay, audience. Great. Yeah. So there's a person walking around with a microphone, and I don't know where they are. But if you raise your hand, oh, they're right there. So if you raise your hand, that lovely person will come to you. Um, I think the first one is on this side of the room. And if you feel inclined, tell us who you are, because I always love knowing. 
Hello, I'm a, um, can you hear me? I'm a, an independent podcast producer. Mona, you mentioned that academic articles are an important source of ideas for you. I'm interested in how you keep tabs on them. Do you monitor particular journals or do you have a more streamlined mechanism? Um, so yeah, I mentioned two sites, Eureka Alert and Science Daily, and both of them will compile new studies that have come out. And very often, it's, it's really interesting to see how academia has changed because academics now aren't just um, getting ahead in their career based on how many journals they're getting published in, which used to be a very good measure of success. It's also about press attention. So they're changing the way that the ways that they're writing these press releases to be like what they think are going to be really, really cool. So you kind of have to like click past some of the buzz around the way that it's described on these sites and then find the original piece. But basically, these, these websites will compile new studies. And I'm really horrified to say that I use this as a resource, but... There are different Reddit forums for academics that are like specialised in the thing. I love Reddit. Why are you horrified? Because I just, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I mean, Reddit is just, it's like anything else on the internet. It's so, I'm, I'm like such a magician's fan that I like need the magician's Reddit thread recaps. Oh, really? Like every time okay. I watch an episode. But it's like anything else on the internet. It's just a There's spectrum of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there, there are different communities on there. So let's say you're interested in the latest academia on, say, climate change. There will be a Reddit thread where academics are, are sharing the latest journal articles. That's also a good go-to. Yeah. Anyone else? Eureka Alert and Science Daily. Yeah. I'm sure there are better ones too, but those are the ones that come to mind. Hi. Hello. I have a question. Um, you were speaking about the, how the nature of podcasting, you can often get very personal with your subjects and you can pull questions or material that's very personal to mm. them. And then you said when your mom would uh, tell you something sensitive, you asked for her permission before you published it. Yeah. Now, is that something that you think that all subjects are entitled to or is that something you only would do for someone you love, like your mother? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I think, again, it comes down to a question of power, right? So, like, you remember that New York Times? What was, who was it that the, time, the Daily got into loads of trouble because they had this interview with this politician who said something about migration. What was it? And what then was they it? didn't play the tape. And then they didn't play the tape because that politician had said afterwards they didn't quite understand that it was on the record. And listeners were, I think, quite justifiably pissed off because they were like, this is a politician that wield so much power that said something that is of public interest to me like the fact that they at some point had like they knew that they were being taped but they decided that that bit would be off the record and I understand like you know journalists have to cultivate long-term relationships with these people they have to respect it when these people have kind of changed their minds but to me that is like a world apart from interviewing someone about a personally traumatic experience whether it's my mother or a member of the public to me they have the first right over their story more than the public does. Because the public doesn't even know that this story exists. Like, how can they lay claim to it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So it's a question of power. Yeah. And I feel? think, well, I think, I mean, we don't really bring people on the show as much as we used to because we're trying to really untangle things of interest between the two of us. But there will be moments we'll be in the studio and we'll we feel very free to talk and feel very free to go down what we call them cul-de-sacs, like whatever cul-de-sac makes sense for us in that moment. But then sometimes, you know, I'll say, you know, do you, do you feel okay sharing that? Like, have you thought about how you're going to feel when this goes out or, and we do have, we do have those internal dialogues. Um, 
I mean, I do always feel, I think because I'm at the New York Times, it's different because when I was a business journalist, I was just like hanging him out to dry, you know, because there was this different, there was a very different attitude to the types of people and the things that I was covering. And I was working, um, I was covering technology and I was covering big companies and people with a lot of power and a lot of money and a lot of influence to make decisions. And so I didn't feel a lot of sympathy or empathy towards my subjects. And now I definitely feel very, very, very protective over my sources sometimes. And I do feel like... You know, if I'm interviewing, I did a story recently on, on folks who identified as non-binary and people who presented in social media, and it, it didn't come up in this instance, but I felt, you know, if a 19-year-old says something to me and, and maybe they aren't aware of how big this audience is, even if they think they understand, they may not be understanding how it's going to feel when their school administrator or their boss or someone sees it, I might check in with them to say, just so you know, like, this is a publication that goes out this broadly, like... Is, are you comfortable with this information being out there? But, but I, I don't know. Those are very different journalistic questions to me in terms of thinking about the goal of the piece. And I think it does shift whether you're dealing with something of national interest versus something where a person may not understand. That they don't have the same awareness of the scope that you do of what the impact might be of their, of their, of their story. Yeah. And if that person is ultimately negatively affected by the thing that they've said, have you punched up or have you punched down? And if it was a person in a position of power, then you've kind of punched up, even if it's inadvertent. Yeah. They're too upfront. These are good questions, you guys. Thank you. Hi. Um, first of all, Mona, I feel personally attacked by the degradation of bubble baths. Uh, <laughs> Fran is. Fran loves bubble baths. Every, yeah, like every right. third Instagram story is personally. Fran just like sinking into sorry. a bubble bath. Wait, if, you, if you saw how disgusting my bathtub is, it's you would understand. It's not that bad, actually. Okay. It's not that bad. So we got to get you into some hotel bubble baths. But <laughs> that aside, um, I have a question that you kind of touched on. You were talking about how data might fail you as it pertains to something like coming out. Mm. Um, a lot of the things that I make are around you know, queer subjectivity, and I often also feel that like data and statistics kind of fail us in how we were recorded in yeah. history. And so much of what you do, Jenna, is around subjectivity. Like you source things and you use information, but it's about how you work things personally. I would just love to hear the two of you expand on mm. what, when you feel data or statistics fail you, in what topics um, does that happen? And when you decide to abandon data or statistics, where do you mm. go from there? That's such a good question. I think, so my starting point would be to say that very often data will replicate the power structures behind it, right? And that's why, for example, I just did an illustration about um, the representation of women in the arts. And someone quite rightly commented saying, like, did you have anything about gender non-conforming people or trans people in your data set? No, I didn't, because the data replicates the power structures and only asks about, are you a woman or a man? And so I think you're absolutely right to have that skepticism to say, like, where am I in this data set? And also, like, as an Arab woman, I'm always missing. I'm never, ever, I'm not on the Census Bureau, I'm not in any data set so I have to like just pick a group and and see like which one I guess comes closest to my reality but I feel like good data journalism talks about that good data journalism will identify those blind spots and say these are the data points that are missing and these are the stories that aren't being told and if you can tell that story well 
that is, that, yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. Um, and that's creating those those pushes for that data to be collected. Because I feel like that data still needs to be collected, right? The fact that it's not collected right now shouldn't be a rejection of data altogether. Hopefully, it should be a push towards better data. Yeah. And the flip side of that, too, is I, I, I really... Part of the reason I got into journalism is because I didn't see stories that were relevant and resonant for me and to me. And I didn't, I, I remember how important it was when I would see like a profile of Janelle Monet as a little one, you know, and be like, oh my God, like that is a type of modality that I didn't know existed. And I always have felt very compelled to try to fill in, I guess, what I saw as a type of missing data set. And that's still that's still the engine that drives most of the work that I do, whether it's from my personal projects with Kimberly Drew and my other nonfiction book projects to the podcast, you know, where I'm like, we work at an institution that has historically, just by, by function of being a historical public, <laughs> publication institution, has not always covered with nuanced stories about people of color, specifically black people, black culture, black women. And what is our contribution to try to correct that, or not even correct it, but just amend it for this particular moment in time because we can. And so I always think about the work that I'm doing as filling in, um, filling in a gap or, or in some way trying to, to set a precedent to normalize that these types of stories also belong within these types of institutions. Yeah. Ooh, we have time for one more. I'll let the runner choose. I see you both raising your hand. Um, Mona, I'm a huge fan. And I Me miss too. you on <laughs> doing Data Please on Mave in America. And then you are on Fortune Favors the Bold. So I'm curious what's next. Ooh, me too. What is next? Um, I don't know. I Yeah, I really don't know. I'm focusing a lot more on the art and the illustration stuff. But I honestly love podcasting so much as a medium. I love audio. So if anyone wants to give me a podcast, that'd be great. Or at least have you on as a guest to do Data Please part. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. What about you, Ooh. Jenna? What do you have coming up? Thank you for the question. Yeah. Oh, just books. Book stuff. Yeah. I, I don't mean, know how book you stuff, do more it. podcasts. Yeah. I don't know how you work on books. <laughs> It's very as, hard, yeah. as you know. Yeah, yeah. You know my struggle. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for coming out to our talk. I hope some of it was interesting. And thank you to Honor Fest for having us. Thank this you. Was really fun. That was Jenna Wortham and Mona Chalabi, recorded live at Honor Fest at White Hotel in Brooklyn. If you like this episode, you have to subscribe to Still Processing. And for more conversations like this one, Visit onairfest.com for information about our upcoming events and projects. Thanks for listening. This is On Air.